I hope you all were listening to the music this morning. This is one of those Sundays where if you were listening, there's really no need uh, for a sermon because it's all there in the music. And so we thank Steve for how well he uh, plans our music every week. So thank you, Steve, for doing that for us. Uh, My name is Ben. I'm the assistant pastor here. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open those up to Luke chapter 15. And as Charlie said earlier, if you don't own a Bible, you can look at those blue paperback ones in in the seats in front of you. And those are our gift to you, and we hope you'll uh, take those home. So Luke 15 is where we'll be, and we'll be continuing our series in the parables of Jesus called Stories from the King. And we call it Stories from the King because many of the parables tell us something about the king and his kingdom. Many of you know that last week, Neva and I came back from California. Uh, I was here after a red-eye flight bright and early in the morning. Neva was at home resting. Uh, I made it to 36 hours before I crashed uh, Sunday night, and that helped reset my clock a little bit, so that was good. Uh, but we try to go to California at least once, sometimes twice a year, because Neva's family lives in California. And so, as many of you can imagine, kind of being out here on the East Coast with their family there, it's very difficult. Some of you probably know having family far away, maybe kids far away, it's very difficult to be far from your family. So we try and do that a couple times uh, a year. And so earlier on uh, in our marriage a few years ago, you know, we had this conversation where we were going back and forth, like, where is the Lord calling us? You know, is he going to call us here uh, to the D.C. metro area, or is he calling us back to California, uh, where Neva's family is? And so we were always talking kind of back and forth on that. And you don't have to worry, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I'm not going anywhere, so don't worry. Um, I, I did just find out you can get houses, uh, trailer homes in Laguna Beach for 60 grand, but I'm still not going anywhere. So uh, don't worry. Uh, but I know that. I know that. Uh, but no, so we, we were talking, where are we going to be? And so uh, one of the things I would say to Neva several times was, you know, if we end up moving to California, I think I might need to take off the pastor hat for a little while and put on a missionary hat instead. And the reason for that is just because Southern California is pretty different from the D.C. metro area. And it's not just that the weather there is perfect and you can be outside like all the time and not worry about bugs or you know, anything like that, which is true. But that's not, that's not what it is. And it's not just that you can maybe call Southern California sort of like the progressive bubble, uh, although that's, you know, that's a part of it, it's not, but it's not just that. It's something that's hard to articulate, but it's everything about the culture. It's the weather, it's the food, it's the hobbies, it's the activities, it's the way people are educated, it's the whole thing about being there. It's the language people use, it's the landmarks. And so going into ministry there would have required a certain kind of missionary lifestyle for me, at least at first, right? And of course, we look at a place like Southern California and we say, well, of course, Southern California is different from us. It's over 2,500 miles away. Any place with, you know, two places with a distance that great, there's bound to be some differences. True. But you know what? I think sometimes what's more difficult for us is to be aware of the changes that are happening around us, like here in the D.C. metro area. You know, when it's, when it's the water we're swimming in, it's a little bit harder for us to pick up on, isn't it? Because it's a slow and it's a steady, it's a gradual change. You know, like, it's less something that you can articulate and it's more something you feel. And I think most of us in this room here know what I'm talking about. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, know what I'm talking about. It, It kind of feels like this water we're swimming in is starting to get a little bit warm. And it kind of seems like, like the, the glass on our fishbowl is getting a little bit smaller. And it's just kind of getting like awkward 
in here. Like, it's getting kind of harder to breathe around us, and, and we, but it's harder, hard for us to put a finger on, like, what exactly is going on, you know? Uh, you know, we can look at maybe, like, the marriage and the gender debate, and that's a part of it, but that's not it, you know? And we can think about uh, maybe the exponential rise in depression and anxiety in our young people, and that's a part of it, but that's not it. You know, and we can think about, well, the tension in our politics and in our, in our racial discussions and our religious freedom. It, it seems to be getting hotter and hotter, and that's true. That's a part of it, but that's not it. You know, what, uh, something else is going on uh, sort of around us, and it's harder for us to put a finger on exactly what that is. Um, there's a Canadian philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. Some of you may have heard of him. And uh, Charles Taylor, a few years ago, he wrote this book called A Secular Age, I'm going to be quoting from that a few times this morning, a secular age. And in this book, he says that our cultural shift can be marked by the fact that we live in this world that he now calls the secular age. And for the first time in our history, we can call our age uh, by this name. And what he means by this is not simply that our age is non-religious. That's not what he means. He doesn't simply mean that schools are non-religious or government is non-religious or, you know, whatever the case may be is non-religious. That's not what he means. What he means is instead that we live in a world where it is now a plausible worldview to be secular. It's now possible, it's plausible to have a view of the world that doesn't have God in the picture. And that's becoming an increasingly wide-held belief. People can now seem to find their meaning and their values and all of those things without God in the picture. They seem uninterested in the God question altogether. You see, when this shift happened, people stopped asking the God question. And so we went from a time where a belief in God went unchallenged to now an age where increasingly an, a disbelief in God is assumed. You know, see what I'm saying? There was a time where a belief in God went unchallenged to now a disbelief in God is assumed. And here's one of the biggest cues that we live in a secular age. The virtues and the biblical stories that we could once assume people would know in our culture can't assume that anymore. We, could, we used to be able to rely on our culture to do some of our pre-evangelism for us. You know, that people would hear the, the stories of the Bible. Can't assume that anymore. We could maybe assume people would come to church so their kids could learn good morals, but people don't even, don't even say that anymore. Why do I need to go to church? And so what we're seeing is now a generation of people coming up that is completely unfamiliar with the great stories of the Bible, with the great teachings of the Bible, with the parables of Jesus. And so this really came to bear on my life a few years ago when I was out uh, in front of my house talking with our neighbor. And he was this 30-something-year-old good old boy from Texas with this, like, deep southern accent, you know, and he, he loved his country. He loved Texas. He'd served two tours in Afghanistan, right? If anyone sort of embodied the conservative, like, Texas guy, it's him, right? And so we're out one night, and we're talking, having a conversation, and it starts to drift towards God and matters of faith. And so I'm thinking, well, let's take this to Scripture, and let's just go to a passage that everybody knows. Like, everybody knows the parable of the prodigal son. So let's start there. And so I, I start telling the story to him, and he stops me a few sentences in. He says, Ben, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that was a wake-up call for me. I was like, in, in the moment, I was like, what? How does a guy come from Texas, serve two tours in the military, get to be 30-something-year-old, and you've never heard the parable of the prodigal son? But I realized that's life in a secular age. We can't assume that people know these great stories anymore. 
Like many people today, my neighbor had never heard the story because he'd never set foot in a church. And he never set foot in a church because he wasn't even bothered with the God question. For him, it was completely unnecessary. And I think sometimes it can be difficult for us to realize that's the world we live in now. But we can't take it for granted that people around us know anything about Christianity or the stories in the Bible. If you ask your friends, if you ask your coworkers, your neighbors, your relatives, what they know about Christianity and what you're likely to get is some trumped up falsehood that they saw in a picture on Facebook. And that's what they know about Christianity. Even passages like we're looking at today, the parable of the two brothers, like, which is what I like to call it. Many of us have probably heard several sermons or read a book or read a blog article on it. It's still relatively unknown to the world around us. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you for the next 20, 25 minutes to consider this parable afresh. Consider this parable from the point of someone who hasn't heard it before. Consider this an exercise in doing a character study of Scripture and applying it to the world around us, okay? And so there's a few ways that I want you to maybe think about this this morning. First, you could simply just listen. You could just listen. Maybe you are someone who has a secular mindset on the world and you're unfamiliar with this passage. I just invite you just to listen to the text. Or maybe you haven't heard many sermons or read many books on this text, and so I invite you just to listen to what we'll be talking about this morning. The second option is to maybe think of someone you know. Think of a friend, think of a coworker, think of, think of a relative or maybe a child who has this sort of secular view on life. And keep them in mind as you listen to the text this morning. And then maybe a third option would be try and suspend your belief for 20 minutes and try and put yourself in the shoes of someone with a secular mindset and try and hear this sermon as if you didn't believe in God at all. Okay? Those are the three options. Everybody kind of know which way they're going to go about listening to the sermon? All right. All right. Let's jump in here to our text from Luke chapter 15. We'll be starting in verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was, de- was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house because he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that this morning you would teach us what it means to find our rest, and our salvation, and our hope, and you. I pray this morning for those who do not know you, that you might bring them home to yourself this morning. We pray this trusting in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as Charlie pointed out at the beginning of our service this morning, if we back up to verse 1, just briefly, This whole chapter arises because the Pharisees come to Jesus. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees come and they grumble at him, this man who receives tax collectors and sinners. And Emeka, our intern this morning in our Sunday school class, he was reminding us just how much Jesus was shattering the barriers at this moment, that he would sit and receive these people So the Pharisees, they come and they grumble. And so then what comes next is Jesus gives them three answers for what's happening when he eats with sinners. He gives them three parables. Some say it's one parable. Some say it's three. Let's say it's three. He gives them three answers for what's going on. In verses three to seven, he says that receiving sinners is like a shepherd who finds a lost sheep and celebrates with his friends. And then the second answer comes in verses 8 to 10, where he says that receiving sinners is like a woman who finds a lost coin and then celebrates with her friends. And in both answers, Jesus leaves no room for doubt what he means, because he says in verses 7 and 10 that the lost sheep and the lost coin represent lost sinners. And the being found represents repentance, and the celebration is what God God does and the angels do with him in heaven. You see, at that moment, some get it and some don't. He's saying, I welcome sinners because I'm the incarnation of God's love pursuing the lost. I am the shepherd seeking the sheep. I am the woman seeking her coin. And this meal we are eating together is a foretaste of the joy that is to come. 
When sinners turn from their sin and accept Christ, they have come home to God. And God is glad. The parable before us this morning, starting in verse 11, has been historically called the parable of the prodigal son. And that's because we tend to focus on the younger brother, the first brother. But many pastors and theologians today have been pointing out, you know, there's actually two brothers in this story, and we miss the point if we don't look at both of them. So I think the parable of the two brothers or the parable of the two lost brothers might be a better name for the passage. And so there's three characters we see in this story. We see the two brothers and the father. The two brothers are two images of two different kinds of people. And they show us two different ways that we can be lost. The father is a figure who represents the joy that God has when his children come home. And what's important for us to look at now in this parable is the relationship that both of these brothers decide to have with their father. So let's look at that quickly. The first brother, he says, my father is unnecessary for my life. My father is unnecessary. I know better. My life would go better without him in the picture. So just give me my money and let me go my own way. I'll be better off on my own. This is the brother we typically call the prodigal son. Now, why do we call him the prodigal? If you're like me, when you hear the word prodigal, you probably associate things uh, like someone who's really messed up and they kind of have this turnaround. They've really screwed up their lives, but then they kind of pull it all together. Or in religious context, you know, we think of someone who's gone off and committed, you know, a life of sin and then they have this spectacular conversion and they become a devout Christian. And we think that because that's kind of what ends up happening to the younger brother who ends up in a pigsty after he spends all his money on prostitutes. But you know what? Those things are extremely important to the younger brother's story. But we'd miss the point if we jump right to his turnaround. If we jump right to the sentimental scene where the father comes rushing out and shows his love towards his younger brother. Because before that, what happens is the younger brother says to his father, I don't need you. That's the whole problem. The younger brother says, I'm better off without you. And so it is that apart from the father, the younger brother is lost. But the second brother, the elder brother, who we see in the third paragraph, he says, the father is just here to give me stuff. I'll get stuff if I just follow all the rules. His relationship to his father is defined by rules that he follows in order to get something. It's principles. It's a set of sort of just things to get by so that he can get something from his father. The elder brother is who we typically associate with being a Pharisee, a rule keeper, without heart, without love. And Jesus has much to say, often with very harsh words, to the heartless religious do-gooders. Why? Why does he spare no expense when he rebukes the Pharisees? Because they should know better. They should know better. You live in the Father's house. You say you keep his commandments. You have the scriptures. And you do nothing out of love. 
You do it to get something. You want a reward. You want a merit. You want to be owed. You want God to be your debtor. And in many ways, it's these whitewashed tombs that Jesus calls them in Matthew 23 who are farther from God, far more lost than any prodigal. The older brother lives under the father's roof, yet he is lost the whole time. Well, as we were talking about earlier, the secular age that we live in, what do these two brothers look like today in our secular age? And as a sort of uh, side note, uh, we all live in a secular age. Okay, we all live in the secular age, whether we consider ourselves secular or not. Because remember, what defines the age we live in is not simply being non-religious, but it's the fact that we live in a world where a closed view, an imminent view, a view that doesn't consider the God question is widely held. It's actually a plausible view for many people in our society. So that's the world we all live in, whether we believe that or not comes down to how we inhabit this world. So what do these two brothers look like today? Well, Charles Taylor, that uh, philosopher I quoted earlier, he would say that these two brothers represent a kind of fundamentalism. They represent a kind of fundamentalism. They're a kind of naive spin on the world, a, a naive reading of the world, a naive way of seeing things. The younger brother could be a secular fundamentalist. Someone who says, I don't need God. I'm better off without him. Everything I need, I can get without God in the picture. Because remember, what defines the younger brother is not necessarily his grossly sinful lifestyle, but a desire to live life apart from the father. Prodigals, just like elder brothers, on the outside can actually be very moral. So Charles Taylor, he'll go on to say that a secular fundamentalist rarely leaves religion because of science or the facts, but because they're following a narrative. A younger brother is always going to tell us that they have a subtraction story, like I left God behind and now my secular life is just kind of everything that's left. Look at the younger brother in our parable. He would say, I left my, my father behind and now the life I'm living is just kind of everything that's left. That story is not entirely true because a secular conversion in our world today always comes by addition, not subtraction. Just like the younger brother, he added a different belief to his life. His new belief was, I'll be better off without my father. It's not a lack of belief, it's just a different one. And a prodigal today would say a different narrative, which is, Most of the time, something like this. More mature people leave religion behind. More courageous people leave religion behind. More humanistic people, more caring people, they leave religion behind. And who doesn't want to be mature? Who doesn't want to be courageous? Who doesn't want to grow up? That's the narrative. But you see, this narrative, this view, it's naive. It's naive because it overextends itself. It claims more for itself than it should. And that's because this view, what Taylor calls exclusive humanism, this way of seeing the world without God in the picture, it can't explain everything that it says it can. 
It doesn't fulfill everything you think it will. And the honest secularist or the honest atheist is going to be able to admit this to us. They'll admit that for all their science, all their data, all the rationality, they can't explain their sense of imagination or creativity. The honest secularist will acknowledge that they can't explain the compelling drive for virtue and to put other people ahead of themselves. One Russian philosopher, when he was critiquing this younger brother view of the world, he kind of sarcastically said, man descended from apes, therefore we should love one another. But you see, the logic doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. A doesn't equal C, you're missing something. And the honest person is going to be able to admit, I can't really explain where my desire for virtue and morals comes from. A younger brother view can't explain the awe and the wonder they feel when they look up at the stars. Jeremy England, he's a a physics professor at MIT in a recent Wall Street Journal article when he was making a case for Christianity, he said, equations can eloquently explain how an airplane stays in the air but they cannot convey the awe someone feels when flying above the clouds. So you see, a purely secular fundamentalist, a younger brother view of the world, it's naive because it claims more for itself than it should. And the honest younger brother will admit that something is missing. They long for something which they can't see to find. See the younger brother in our passage, he goes out, And he begins to long for what he has left behind. Taylor calls this a sense of being haunted. Many people in our world today are haunted by the things they've left behind. The sentiment might sound something like this. I don't believe in God, but I sure do miss him. You know? Is that you this morning? Is that kind of where you're coming at? in this room this morning? Perhaps that's something for you that's worth exploring. But at the same time, I don't want to just think that, I want you to think I'm just knocking on younger brothers because at the same time, elder brothers, they're equally naive because elder brothers represent a kind of religious fundamentalist, someone who reduces Christianity to a set of statements, a set of rules, a set of principles to be followed. It's a reductionistic Christianity. It's a Christianity that says, here's what you need to believe. Here's what you got to do. That's it. And if the first brother is naive because his spin on the world overextends itself, then the second brother, the elder brother, well, he's naive because he's far too simple. He's far too flat. A simple set of principles and rules can hardly relate to the highs and lows of our lives. They can hardly relate to the ins and outs of human experience, the depths of suffering and affliction. What good are rules in suffering? Recently, Neva and I have been watching this show called This Is Us. Anyone else watch that? A few people? All right. Got some some fans here. Um, We were a season behind. We're caught up now. And uh, this show, uh, man show's so good. Um, I don't even know what channel it's on. We, we had to iTunes it, but um, it's emotional. It's really emotional, but it's really good. And I think I need, on average, at least two tissues 
uh, to get through each episode. Uh, but I'm telling you that this show, it's like therapy. This show is like therapy watching it. And I'm saying, who needs a counselor, okay, when you can pay 20 bucks to get this show? It's great. And I'm just kidding, by the I've had counseling and I'm watching the show and I'm still a mess. So <laughs> get, you know, counseling's good, the show's good, uh, you know, but... Uh, one of the reasons the show is so emotional is because it collides all kinds of experiences of human pain, of sorrow, into one overarching plot line. It has death and loss and grief and weight and eating disorders, adoption, insecurity, marriage problems, depression, anxiety. It's all there. And you know what? An elder brother faith has nothing to say to any of that. An elder brother has nothing to say to any of that because he's far too simple, far too flat. He can't explain why they're suffering, why things don't go his way because after all, he followed the rules. See, the elder brother, what's his big problem in the last paragraph? I did, I, I obeyed. Where, how come it didn't go my way? Elder brother faith is far too flat and far too simple. So you want to know how you can test yourself to see if you're an elder brother? Here's a couple tests, a couple questions you can ask yourself. The first quest, question or the first test would be, how do you treat prodigals? How do you treat younger brothers? How do you treat the secular people in your workplace? Do you dismiss them as fools? Do you show them compassion in your dialogue? Or do you treat them like walking arguments that need to be won? Do you share with them the beauty and the awe and the joy and the wonder of the gospel? Or do you share a set of rules and principles? The second test is how is your faith impacting your life? Is your faith what grounds you in every area of your life or is it simply one more thing among many? Is it just Sunday morning for you? Tim Keller in that quote that's in your bulletin in the front, he kind of says that in a secular age, we're all impacted. We're all impacted. And what tends to happen for Christians is our faith becomes thinned out. It becomes disenchanted to the point that our faith is just kind of one more thing, one more option in our life next to everything else next to our marriage, next to our hobbies, next to our home life. But what is Christianity if it's not the essential building block of our life? What is Christianity if Christ isn't everything to us? It's a hollow, loveless, elder brother faith. Two brothers, two different relationships with the Father, where does this parable leave us? John Bunyan, uh, the famous Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he has this quote, it's in your bulletin as well. He says that often when God wants to tune a heart for himself, or set a heart in tune for himself, he often starts on the lowest note. And I was thinking about that this morning when we were singing, Come Thou Fount, you know, that first line, tune my heart because what Bunyan means is that when someone comes to God, before they put their faith in Christ, it often comes from a severe low moment 
or season in their life. So let's start with the elder brother. The parable ends and the elder brother isn't in the feast. He's lived his whole life in the house of the father and now the story ends and he's out. For all his obedience, for all his rule following, he had no joy. And so he gets mad and he leaves. You could say the whole conclusion to this parable is meant to be a shock and a sting for the, parable, or for the Pharisees from verse 1. Jesus was essentially saying, you talk about being righteous, but you're mad that I eat with sinners. You should be rejoicing. The reality is, you're the one who needs to worry about the state of your soul. The warning for elder brothers is it's entirely possible to live our whole lives in the house of the Father, in the church, and at the end of the day, find ourselves outside the feast. That's the special danger of being an elder brother. You can live your whole life thinking you're in just to find out you're out. And I think that's the low point that elder brothers, that we need to come to. We need to come to a place where we realize this faith we've been professing, it's all been a sham. I've had no love. I'm a fraud. What I really need is the love of the Father, not my rules. I'm the greatest sinner of all. I need Jesus to be my own or I am done for. See, this parable tells us that there's actually two ways to run from God. One is by ditching God altogether, but the other is by thinking it's your obedience to God that gets you something. Thinking that religious obedience earns you salvation or that God owes you a debt for what you've done. You see, for many of us, for us elder brother figures, we need to repent not only of the bad things that we've done, but we also need to repent of the good and moral things we've done when we've tried to earn our own salvation, when we've done them to try and put God in our debt as if he owes us something for what we do. Now, I've been trying to apply for you all this morning what a younger brother, what a prodigal may look like in our secular age. And so at the beginning of this sermon, I asked you to think of someone, someone you, you might know who has a secular view on life, someone who isn't even bothered by the God question at all. Maybe as the sermon went along, you thought of someone else. Maybe someone else popped into your head. So who did you think of? Who'd you think of at the beginning? Who'd you think of in the last 20 minutes. For some of you, it may have been a friend or a coworker. For others, it may have been a brother or a sister or some other relative. Many of you, I think, the secular prodigal you pray for the most in your life is your own child. Neve and I are due in December with our baby boy. 
And we often pray that the Lord will save our son, that God will give him a voice to sing his praises and to join you know, in with the church and that he'll give him a heart. He'll always grow up never knowing a day where he didn't know Christ. And to be honest, um, I don't know what I'd do if I never saw any fruit of that in his life. Can't imagine that pain. But you see, this can be hard for us to hear as parents or as friends, as relatives, as brothers, as sisters. But you see, I think often younger brothers need to have their own low note too. And so often today, what that looks like is coming to a realization that living the secular life, being my own authority, ditching the God thing altogether, it's not everything I thought it would be. It takes coming to a point to realize I have longings that I can't explain. I have desires which aren't filled, questions that go unanswered. The more I try to muscle my way through my life as my own authority, the emptier I feel. This wasn't everything I thought it was going to be. If that's you this morning, if you see yourself as the younger brother, the one who has scorned your heavenly father, the one who's declared him unnecessary for your life, it's never too late to come home. It's never too late to come home. All you need is to recognize your need. Notice that the parable says that the younger brother, he came to himself. He came to himself. And what that means is he was honest with himself. He recognized life wasn't going how he thought it was going to go. He confessed that the things he pursued hadn't given him everything he thought it was going to give him. He was honest that he was left feeling haunted, that something was missing. And if that's you this morning, if you have that feeling, that emptiness, that something isn't working out the way you thought it was going to work out, maybe that means Christianity still has some stones you haven't looked under. Maybe Christ has some things to say to you that are worth considering. Because here's the good news. God saves sinners. God saves hollow, loveless elder brothers. And God saves prideful younger brothers who have declared God unnecessary for their lives. It's never too late. God is gracious and he shows his loving kindness to all of us. And he does it through Jesus. He directs our imagination and our creativity to himself, the one who is the source of all creativity and wonder, the one who set the stars and the moons and the galaxies in place. He shows us true virtue, that there's no greater love than a man who lays down his life for his friends. And we know that that comes first and foremost in Christ, who laid down his life so that children can come back home. He shows us true beauty in the beautiful Son of Man who condescends and takes on human flesh, flesh who's stripped robe so that we can have 
his and be given the name of son or daughter. And when all of that happens, God says to us, come home. Come home. And his children, they turn to him with love and he welcomes them into the banquet feast with love and with joy and with celebration. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word speaks clearly to us and has something to say to us in each and every age. Your word is timeless because it is living and it is active. And it foremost teaches us about Jesus who came and he sought the lost so that we might come home. And we know that every time a sinner comes home to you, you rejoice and there is a celebration in heaven. And so Lord, this morning I ask that you would bring younger brothers and elder brothers home. You would fill us with joy and we might find our hope and our rest, and our gratitude, and our salvation in you, and you alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.